Open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, be in verses 1 to 11 this morning. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Philippians 2, 1 to 11. If you need any proof that God is sovereign and in control, the fact that Christianity survived 90s youth group is proof positive of that. Do you remember, those of you that grew up in 90s youth group, there may be some in this room, perhaps, that, was, that were there. You remember the hand motions? to the songs we used to do, and we thought it was cool. Came from heaven to earth to show, from the earth to the cross. You got it? Yeah. You remember this? And we thought we were awesome. There was also this little thing we used to wear around our wrist. Some of you might remember it. It was a bracelet. had four letters and a question mark on it. You remember what it was? WWJD. It stood for what would Jesus do? It was that designed so that in any circumstance you might just be, I don't know, encounter a question or a circumstance you come across and you go, you look down at your wrist and you go, what would Jesus do? You remind yourself of what you should do. Now, here's the reality of that. It's really not that bad of a question. It's Unfortunately, linked to all the cheesiness of 90s youth group. But it's really not a bad question. What would Jesus do? In our passage this morning, Paul is going to address the church at Philippi. And he's really going to remind them of not what would Jesus do, but perhaps slightly modify that question in their mind. Things, something that they might consider at any moment in their interaction with one another as a church body. Let's look at Philippians 2, 1-11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but, he, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have read your word, but we ask that you help us to interpret it, to understand it, and to apply it to our lives. Father, I don't know every heart in this room. You do. You and you alone. 
can see the hearts of men and women, children. I pray that you would open all of our hearts, that as we read this word, we might see its application to us in our lives. Only you can do that through your spirit, and I pray that you would. In Jesus' name, amen. As we've been going through Philippians, we've seen just how intent Paul is on focusing our attention on our lives being centered on Christ. How is it that we live Christ-centered lives? He tells the Philippians that he wants them to be complete and blameless, he says, in the day of Christ. That is, when Christ returns. He tells them God is the one that begins the good work in them, and He's the one that's going to see it through to completion. In the meantime, He says He wants them to abound in the love of Christ. And He says to be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. He rejoices that the gospel has advanced, the gospel of Jesus Christ has advanced, in spite of that being at his own expense, Paul, we've said, has been writing this book to the Philippian church while he's been in prison. So the preaching of the gospel and the advance of the gospel has really come at the expense of his own freedom. But then he says that there are people that are preaching the gospel, while in verse 17 he says that they're thinking to afflict him in his imprisonment. So not only has the preaching of the gospel come at the expense of his own freedom... It's also come at the expense of his own name as well. They're preaching at his expense. In fact, he says that his very identity has taken a backseat to Christ working in him. He says, for to me to live is Christ. It's as if his very identity has been erased or subsumed into Christ, who is acting through him and can do with him whatever he wills whether that is imprisonment, suffering, or anything else. So with all of that, in what is essentially the introduction to the letter, Paul then shifts in verse 27 to what we talked about last week, where he's exhorting the Philippians by commanding them in 127, in a a verse that's connected to what we're talking about this morning, where he says, Only let your manner of life Be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And last week we saw what he means by that. He goes on to tell us is that they are to be united. That's his desire. He wants them as a church body to let their lives be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And by that he means he wants them to be united. He says united in doctrine, united in mission, and unafraid of the opposition. They're united in their opposition to the opposition of the gospel, if you will. A manner of life worthy of the gospel of Christ is a life where the whole church is of one mind striving side by side. Not face to face, not against each other, striving side by side, linking arms, preaching the gospel in a united way to the culture around them. Well, as you can see from the passage that we read in Philippians 2, 1 to 11, Paul's not just going to drop the subject. I know that's Sometimes what we would like, if it hits us as uncomfortable, think, okay, let's move on from that. I'm glad we can move on from that one. But he insists again in this passage, look at verse 2, where he, he wants that church, again, to be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. 
It's sort of a repeat of what he's just talked about in, in last week's sermon. So our passage today is directly connected to the passage that we talked about last week, since Paul is wanting effectively the same thing out of the Philippian church, for them to be united. Last week he told us what our lives should look like. We're united in doctrine, united in mission, unafraid of opposition. But now Paul is going to tell us how. How can we be of the same mind? How is it possible for us to be united in mind? And the first thing that he says is being of the same mind requires biblical humility. Being of the same mind requires biblical humility. So in the first part of this passage, Paul is pulling the Philippians in close to him at the very beginning in the first verse of this passage when he gives them these if statements. You see that there in verse 1 where he says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any comfort in love, if there is any participation in the Spirit, if there is any affection and sympathy. All of these things that he's mentioning here to them He's actually talked about in one way or another back in chapter 1. He's mentioned all of these things that are theirs in Christ. Encouragement in Christ. He has done this for them in his own preaching of the gospel. They have been encouraged. They have been encouraged by his imprisonment for Christ. Encouraged to the extent that they're boldly now preaching the gospel because of his imprisonment. Love and affection. He has given to them. He has shown them. He's already assured them that He yearns for them with the affection of Christ Jesus. If you look in verse 8, I yearn for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Their participation in the Spirit, He mentions again in verse 19, in conjunction with their prayers for Him. So when you read this verse 1, when He says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any comfort in love, if there is any participation in the Spirit, if there is any affection and sympathy, basically what He's saying is, if we have this kind of relationship with each other, if our relationship, our friendship, our mutual affection for each other is built on a foundation of Christ, if the affection that I've told you I have for you, if you also have that for me, then complete my joy by being of the same mind. As something of a spiritual father to the Philippians, he wants nothing more than for them to love one another. If you owe me anything, if you're going to repay me in any way, love one another. Be united. That's how you can repay me. Pay it forward, you might say. There's nothing that demonstrates Christ-centeredness in the life of a church than for the church to love one another. But, but I want you to see where this logical train is going to come into the station, so to speak. Look down at verse 14 of chapter 2. 2.14. Just catch a glimpse at where all of this is going. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Alright, let's pretend for just a second, you're the Christian spiritual father of someone, who's at a distance to you, and you're writing them an email, encouraging them right before you die, let's say, or while you're in prison, maybe, 
to do one thing. You're going to boil down the faith to really one charge that you have for them. Maybe you're writing to an entire church body, and you're wanting to give them one charge. Perhaps it's a sin to avoid. Something that will lead to blamelessness when Christ comes. One sin that you could warn them against. I would be willing to wager that grumbling or disputing wouldn't make your top 50. Yet Paul leads with it. It's his number one thing. The conclusion of being of the same mind, striving toward the same purpose, being united in mission, the pinnacle of that is that you wouldn't grumble or complain. He must have known something about the nature of church and how frequently we love to grumble and complain. It comes all the way back to here. There's nothing that tears away the bond of love inside a church of being in full accord, he says, than to grumble against your brother or sister. So it stands to reason that in a Christ-centered church, that to be a Christ-centered church, or even to be a Christ-centered Christian, means that you're in full accord and of one mind with your brothers and sisters without grumbling or complaining about them. Grumbling and complaining about them is the antithesis of Christ-centeredness. It tears away at the fabric of your relationship. But more than that, it brings other people into that relationship. It, it offers them to tear away at the fabric as well. Grumbling and complaining doesn't happen in a vacuum. It happens to other people. And those people join in in the grumbling or complaining. Or at, 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 at best, maybe, they feel ostracized. This is precisely the reason that churches can normally survive tragedy and can normally even survive a tremendous fall of the leaders in place in the church. But virtually no church can survive a kind of division created by gossip, slander, grumbling, or complaining. So Paul is wanting to stave that off in the life of the Philippian church by reminding them and telling them to be of the same love, of one accord, act as though you are of one mind. And the key to doing this, he says, is do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Look at verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. He says the key to this kind of way of thinking, this kind of unity in the body, this is kind of unity of mind, is humility. Every person has to be humble. But I think the kind of humility that Paul has in mind here is worth really focusing on so that we can firmly grasp, because the culture is going to teach you a different kind of humility, not the kind of humility that Paul is getting at here. First, he says, humility is devoid of selfish ambition or conceit. Is devoid of selfish ambition or conceit. It's not wanting to gain an advantage. In other words, biblical humility is not seeking to build up your own name. 
Paul has already used this same word ambition in the previous, in a couple of passages prior to this, where he talks about the rival preachers who are going around at, at the see, seeking their own name while he's in prison. They're, they're, they're preaching out of, he says, selfish ambition. The churches seem to be paying attention to Paul. They seem to be listening to his counsel and his teaching. And now that he's in prison, the rival preachers have, have found a, a means of gathering the uh, congregation for themselves and that are going to listen to them. They get, they've gained an audience in Paul's absence, in the vacuum that he has perhaps left behind. The point is that he says to them to literally do nothing, he says, from vain glory which is conceit. We have the word conceit there. It's vainglory, which is a word that we don't really use that often, but it's a compound word that really kind of gives its meaning away. Vainglory. Glory that doesn't last. Glory that is, is perishing. In other words, like these preachers that have gone around preaching and gaining an audience that would praise them, they seek the praise of other people. That's not the kind of... That's, that's antithetical to, to biblical humility, he says. We're not to seek selfish ambition or conceit. But second, and this is really important, especially in regards to the culture's view of humility, humility raises others to the level of the self. Biblical humility raises others to the level of the self. Now, this is the opposite of the way the world would teach humility. Worldly humility is self-deprecation. That's how the world sees humility. No one wants to hear an interview with a concert violinist telling everyone how she's not really that good. That's, that's worldly humility. I'm not really that good. I've got a lot of things to work on. And don't we respond when we hear that? We say, oh, she's so humble. It's self-deprecation. It's stating what is not obviously true. You are that good or you wouldn't be a concert violinist. Wow, she's so humble. Notice that Paul isn't telling them to debase themselves, be critical of themselves. He's telling them instead to elevate others above themselves. That's much harder to do. If you think of yourself as nothing, then you will think of everyone else, according to worldly humility, as something slightly more than nothing. If you define humility by you debasing yourself, then you still become the center of your own humility. Imagine that. How can we make ourselves the center of our own humility? Well, it's how I think of myself. That's what the world says. But Paul assumes that you have opinions. He assumes that you have preferences. He assumes that you actually value yourself, that you take care of yourself, that you feed yourself, that you are essentially by nature and by birth the center of your own universe. He assumes that that is the case for everyone. But he says, look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. What he's challenging you to is elevating the concerns of everyone else above themselves. That's much harder. As C.S. Lewis once said, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. I might change it in the positive to say what Paul is saying here. It's thinking of others more. 
It's putting their concerns ahead of your own. So Paul is urging us to a life where our own self-interest, our ambition, our conceit, all of those things is all on a downward trajectory. We're getting rid of, of that. But even more than that, it's not one where we're merely self-deprecating, but where we're actually coming underneath other people and elevating their concerns ahead of our own. He tells the Roman church something similar in Romans chapter 12, verse 10, where he says, Love one another with brotherly affection. And listen to what he says here. Outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another in showing honor. There is no relationship that that very idea of biblical humility won't radically transform. There's no relationship that you have that, that practicing that won't radically transform. I'm going to use the example of marriage, but you feel free to apply it to whatever relationship you want. It's a friendship or any other kind of relationship. Consider the radical impact that could be had on a marriage when a husband cares more about the needs of his own wife more than his own needs. And his wife cares more about the needs of her husband than her own needs. Each one is being mercifully attended to by the other. It's not as though one is caring for the other without it in return. No, they are both seeking to outdo one another in honor by this downward trajectory, lifting the other's needs ahead of their own. Each feels loved, each feels cherished, each feels heard, each feels validated. The opinions, the concerns, the cares of each are elevated to such a place of importance that the husband is seeking to live with his wife in an understanding way, is seeking to love her as Christ loved the church, while the wife is in the midst of submitting to her husband as the church submits to Christ. And the couple is then engaged in this endless battle of seeking the other's honor. Imagine what that would look like, what that kind of marital strife would look like. That's a whole different kind of marital strife and struggle. But this is precisely also what makes the parent-child relationship so difficult, isn't it? Young children are, by their very nature, incapable of responding with this kind of humility. They are incapable of responding by their very nature in this kind of humility to the parents. The child is born seeking their own needs as king of the universe. And as parents, let's be honest, sometimes we can cater to their wants, let's say. And why do we cater to their wants? Because it keeps them quiet. That's the reason. Because it keeps them quiet. And so we cater to their wants instead of seeking what they need more than anything. We cater to their wants, and then all of a sudden we look, and what we've created is a want monster. All they do is want. You would think, you get a birthday and you get all these presents, and then what do you do? Well, you start talking about Christmas. What I want for Christmas. All of a sudden, the child is so spoiled, the wants never stop. But what they need is a good switch. 
Some of you are like, I know what you're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) But even in the parent-child relationship, this still applies. The parent is to seek the child's needs ahead of their own. Defining the child's needs becomes somewhat difficult, especially in this day and age. But the Scriptures tell us what the child needs. He needs to hear the Gospel over and over and over again. The child needs to be reminded of sin. The child needs to be reminded of Christ's sacrifice on their behalf. This is what the child needs. This is your job as a parent. It's so much easier to give them what they want. But then you find they're incapable of responding in humility. At least not until you're old enough to totally forget about it. right? But what happens when a room full of adults inside of a church look only to their own interests instead of the interests of others? Well, they become the child, right? They become a childish church because each is self-seeking. Each is seeking their own self-interests. That's not a church that is defined by Christian maturity. That's not a church that is Christ-centered, that is gospel-focused, that is of one mind. That's not a church that is built up in love or participating in the Spirit that's encouraged by Christ that has affection and sympathy for one another. That's not a church at all. It's childishness masquerading as a church. It's a church that's driven by selfish ambition and conceit. But how do we get out? What do we do? How do we escape our desire towards self-seeking? How is that level of biblical humility actually achieved? Well, he tells us biblical humility requires imitation of Jesus. Biblical humility requires imitation of Jesus. Now, I want you to look at verses 5 to 11, and I think you've probably heard this passage many times before. There are some very difficult parts in verses 5 to 11, some things that are challenging as we read them to understand what Paul is actually saying, and that often trip people up and have led people into heresy of all kinds. And most of those troubling parts are in verse 6 and the first three words of verse 7. All of those, that whole run right there through verse 6 and the first three words of verse 7 are really challenging. So it's important that we understand what he means by each phrase. So put your eyes on it. We're going to look right at it. In verse 6, you see he says, He was in the form of God, which causes, has caused many and might cause you to ask, Was he not truly God? What does he mean by form? What does he mean by the form of God? Was he not really God? He was only kind of looking like God. But if you look at what he says in verse 7, he took on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. It's obvious that what Paul means by form is the external appearance visible to human observation. How we understand him, how we saw him, is as God and man, or in the form of a servant. So Paul is highlighting here the disparity between the two ways Jesus has presented himself to mankind throughout the ages. He has demonstrated himself to be God, and he has also demonstrated himself to be a servant, that of a slave. 
Elsewhere, Jesus is described by Paul in Colossians 1, 15-20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. There's practically no way that Paul could say any clearer that Jesus was not created. It is eternal with the Father. And that he took on the form of a servant. That he is God. Hebrews 1.3, the author says this, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is God, and yet he was with God. Eternal with the Father. There is no question as to who Jesus is by his very nature. By the word form, Paul doesn't mean to communicate that he wasn't really God. He's adamant he was really God. How has he appeared to us, both as God and as man in the form of a servant? But then the next phrase, he says, Did not, e- did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now this phrase has led a lot of people into confusion as to what he's really saying here. And there's been a lot of discussion over what he means. Some translations you may have, like I think the NIV is this way, says uh, he did not count equality with God a thing to be held on to for advantage. That's the way some translations have it. I think in the ESV you even have a note that says it could be translated that way or that that's potentially what he means because it's, so, it's sometimes so confusing. That's a better summary of the meaning, but it's not necessarily a good translation of the words that Paul uses. Paul is conveying the idea that Jesus didn't see his own equality with God as something to be clutched tightly to and held on for himself. So that, in the end, he just received and received and received. He got and he got and he got. If you've ever seen or read, perhaps, Lord of the Rings, some yeses and some some noes, Gollum counts the ring as a thing to be grasped. He's holding on to it for his own advantage. That is antithetical to what Paul, what, what Christ did. Instead, what did he do? Paul says in the next phrase, he emptied himself. And this is the next line that trips people up. What is he saying? He emptied himself. Did he come to earth and give up being God entirely? Is that what he means when he says he emptied himself? Was Jesus stripped of all his deity while he was on earth? That's how heresies spring up. No, that's not what Paul is saying. It's an idiom meaning he gave up his rights. He forwent his rights. Though he possessed equality with God, both before time began and while he was on earth, and even now, he didn't avail himself to all of its privileges. Notice that he says he didn't swap forms. It's not that he gave up his form of being God and took on and said the form of a servant. What did he say? He says he took on the form of a servant. Mentions nothing about giving that up, giving up the form of God. 
He didn't avail himself, not grasping all of his rights as God. Instead, he took on the form of a servant. He became a nobody. D.A. Carson says it like this, The eternal Son of God did not think of his status as God as something that gave him the opportunity to get and get and get. Instead, his very status as God meant he had nothing to prove, nothing to achieve. And precisely because he is one with God, one with this kind of God, he made himself nothing and gave and gave and gave. Now, we can focus on those verses and miss the forest for the trees. But it's now we've got to zoom out and ask, what is Paul actually saying? What is Paul telling the Philippians? Look at how he gets there in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Remember at the end of verse 2, when he said, being in full accord and of one mind? What mind is he wanting them to have? What mind is he telling them to pursue? The mind he wants them to have is the mind of Christ. That's what he wants them to put on. But you notice what he also says? It's yours. It's yours in Christ Jesus. Have this mind, the mind of Christ, among yourselves, because it's yours to have. You can actually possess it. You can have the mind of Christ and the kind of unity that exists there. The key to biblical humility is considering not merely what Jesus would do, but what Jesus did do. What did the mind of Christ actually lead him to? Well, his actions, his own mind was governed by the Spirit of God. But Paul tells us in many other places, in Romans and Corinthians, that your own bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. He says that in Corinthians. That the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead now dwells in you, in his letter to the Romans. Now in Philippians, the mind of Christ is in you by virtue of your faith in Christ. By virtue of your being included in the body of Christ, the mind of Christ now dwells in you, governed by God's very Spirit. This is the pattern of the Christ-centered life. To have our minds so governed by Christ that our lives become patterned after His own act of humility in His crucifixion. Christ-centered life is to have our minds so governed by Christ that our lives become patterned after His own act of humility seen in His crucifixion. The Christian is to live what we would call a cruciform life. That means a life that is patterned after Jesus' mission to the cross. That's the destination, that's the journey of every Christian. Your life is patterned after the cross of Jesus. 
A life that rather than grasping for every perceivable advantage to you to climb your way to the top of life, you consider the needs of others and place them ahead of your own. That is the journey that the Christian is on. That is a cruciform life, a life that takes the shape of the cross. But this is a task that is entirely too big for us. It's a task we can't do. That's why it's important that we go back to chapter 1, verse 6, and remember what Paul tells them. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. This is God's work. That is what he's doing for the Christian. He is bringing about a pattern that looks just like Jesus walking to the cross for the benefit of those standing near you, of those fellow members of your own church. The pattern that He's bringing about in your life, the work that He's begun and that He's bringing about to completion is this pattern of following Christ where you also are taking up your cross and following Him. Jesus tells his own disciples, this is what you should expect of following after me. That you're going to have to take up your cross and follow me. In fact, no one can be my disciple who doesn't take up his cross and follow after me. That doesn't just mean being a martyr. That means dying to your own self-interest. Elevating the interests of others above your own. Becoming a servant of all. And it's only in that kind of downward, cruciform trajectory that the resurrection is yours. It's only in the life of a Christian that the resurrection is yours. So the path of following Christ is taking up the cross of Christ. It's not elevation. It's not success. It's not riches. It's cruciform. It's humility. It's service to others. It's love for others. It's placing their needs ahead of your own. It's becoming a nobody. It's a downward trajectory. But where does it lead? In the end, where does it lead at the end of this passage? What does he say? It leads to the form of you bowing your knee before Jesus and confessing that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That downward trajectory leads all the way to the foot of Christ, where you there proclaim that he is Lord to the glory of the Father. That's the path that we're on. Not seeking to gain an advantage. Not seeking our own self-interest. Not determining what is best by what our preferences would say. But rather, determining what is best for others. Look, this is the pinnacle of Christian maturity. The pinnacle of Christian maturity is a race to the bottom. Which is completely the inverse of what the world would tell you it is. The corporate ladder is built on you stepping on the heads and feet of those near you. But the cruciform pattern of the Christian is a race to the bottom, not the top. But I want you to notice something, especially to my unbelieving friends. He doesn't say that some knees will bow. And some tongues will confess. He says, every knee will bow. 
and every tongue confess. He also says, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Death is not an escape. At the end of all things, we will all become very aware of who the king of the universe is. And every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. You may do it because you want to out of joy. Or you may do it out of compulsion. But there is no question as to whether or not you will do it. To be honest, it takes more faith to not be a Christian than to be one. I know for many of us in the room who are Christians, it doesn't seem that way. But there was an explosion of the gospel message that happened in the first century in response to something. People were radically converted, and it exploded around the world. And you have to explain that. And I simply do not have the faith that it takes to say that it happened for no reason. It happened in response to the resurrection of Christ. God highly exalted him and gave him a name that is above every name. And it's precisely at, the, at that name, the name of the resurrected Christ, that every knee will bow in heaven and on earth. So my challenge to you, my unbelieving friend, you are welcome here anytime. My challenge to you is to repent of your sin. Acknowledge him now out of joy. Receive the forgiveness that he offers you in the cross. Trust in that forgiveness. Live your life in trust of that forgiveness. And to my Christian friends, there is difficulty sometimes in accepting the forgiveness that God grants to you in Christ. That's the struggle of the Christian. We sin and we think, well, this is it. But if He required perfection of you, none of us would make it. All of the qualifications to, to get to eternal life have all been achieved by Christ. What we have left is to trust. I don't want to trust. I want to think that I've got to do it. I want to grab with my two fists and muscle down and endure in this life and work hard so that when I get there, God tells me, well done, good and faithful servant. But that's the exact opposite of what he's telling you. A cruciform life is a race to the bottom where there is the utmost dependence on Christ because you recognize, I am a sinner in need of forgiveness. That's what trust in Christ actually is. That's what he's calling us to as Christians, is that kind of faith. 